Hello, everyone, and welcome to the October 13th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foltz with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The WCAB changed course in its second en banc opinion on the landmark case of Jose Dubon versus World Restoration and the State Compensation Insurance Fund, a case now known as Dubon II. The new decision comes as some relief to the defense industry that has seen major aspects of SB 863 evaporate in a flurry of judicial opinions attacking some of its major provisions. The applicant community, no doubt, will have consternation over this new development. Last February, the WCAB in Dubon 1 ruled that the WCAB, rather than the IMR process, must decide appropriate medical treatment in situations where utilization review was defective. It reasoned that if there is no valid, valid UR decision subject to IMR, the issue of medical necessity must be determined by the WCAB. In a surprising reversal, the WCAB has now ruled that a utilization review UR decision is invalid and not subject to independent medical review, only if it is untimely. Legal issues regarding the timeliness of a UR decision must be resolved by the Workers' Compensation Appeals Board, not IMR. All other disputes regarding a UR decision must be resolved by the IMR process. If a UR decision is untimely, the determination of medical necessity may then be made by the WCAB based on substantial medical evidence consistent with Labor Code Section 4604. The new case reversed the prior ruling stating it would rescind the February 27, 2014 NBank decision in Dubon 1 and affirm the decision of the WCAB Administrative Law Judge. The underlying decision held that the medical necessity of applicants requested back surgery must be determined by IMR, notwithstanding any procedural defects in defendant's timely UR decision. The prior holding was modified by concluding that a UR decision is invalid only if it is untimely. Only legal disputes over UR timeliness must be resolved by the WCAB. The sufficiency of the medical records provided, expertise of the reviewing physician, and compliance with the MTUS are all questions for the medical professional. And the legislature has made it abundantly clear that medical decisions are to be made by only medical professionals. To allow a work comp judge to invalidate a UR decision based on any factor other than timeliness and substitute his or her own decision on a treatment request violates the intent of SB 863. Commissioner Marguerite Sweeney descended from the NBank decision. She would have affirmed Dubon 1. Not only are states approving the use of medical marijuana at an astounding pace, but at least two state Supreme Courts in Colorado and in New Mexico are taking up questions that center on marijuana and workers' compensation. Such cases are of particular interest to those watching the workers' compensation space. 
and it has some wondering whether insurers will start being asked to pay for a substance that the federal government considers to be illegal. And the National Council for Compensation Insurance says that insurers are starting to receive requests to pay for medical marijuana. NCCI has been concerned about the implications and been tracking the issue for quite some time. NCCI is particularly interested in the appellate cases in Colorado and New Mexico. The case of Coates versus Dish Network is a Colorado case involving a man who was injured and using mer medical marijuana off-duty and was terminated from employment. A trial judge upheld the termination as lawful because use of marijuana, while it is legalized for both medicinal and non-medicinal uses in Colorado, violates federal law. The Colorado Court of Appeals affirmed the employer's right to fire the employee, but the Colorado Supreme Court recently granted a review of the case. Another case being closely watched is the New Mexico case of Valpando versus Benz Automotive Services and Redwood Fire and Casualty. The case is believed to be the first in the nation in which a judge has ordered an insurance carrier to reimburse a workers' comp claimant for the cost of medical marijuana to treat back pain. The case is being appealed to the New Mexico Supreme Court. When it comes to medical marijuana, states have followed a follow-the-leader pattern. In 1996, California became the first state to legalize mar medical marijuana. Some 14 years later, it is currently legal in 23 jurisdictions and the District of Columbia for medicinal use, and it's legal without a prescription in Washington and Colorado. Also trending upward is the list of illnesses that advocates believe marijuana can treat. Among those illnesses are appetite stimulation, Alzheimer's, arthritis, asthma, Crohn's disease, GI tract disorders, glaucoma, migraines, nausea from chemotherapy, general pain, and a host of psychological disorders including depression or schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and Tourette syndrome. An absence of national drug code for marijuana also creates reimbursement issues, as well as liability concerns for employers and insurance companies that may pay for medical marijuana if additional injuries are caused by drug intoxication. And given federal issues, many state courts will be reluctant to approve medical marijuana for the treatment of work-related injuries. And now our fraud report. A Big Bear Lake man has been arrested on suspicion of running his construction business without having workers' compensation insurance. San Bernardino County District Attorney's Office said that 38-year-old Brandon Scott Bede faces misdemeanor charges for doing business as an uninsured employer. The insurance fraud unit began investigating Bede's business, Bede Construction, last August when the Contractor State License Board filed a claim against him. He was arrested in September at a construction site in Big Bear Lake. A Chino woman has been charged with two felony counts of use of false documents and one felony count of identity theft. 30-year-old Letitia 
Sipario filed a workers' compensation claim last December alleging that she sustained multiple injuries while performing her job duties as a machine operator for a Chino-based nutritional supplement company. During an investigation, it became apparent that Serapio's social security number belonged to another person and that her resident alien card was fake. District attorney investigators arrested her at her residence in the city of Chino and she was booked into the West Valley Detention Center on $50,000 bail. The case is being prosecuted by Deputy District Attorney David Simon. An indictment was unsealed charging two managers and operators of three Los Angeles medical clinics with Medicare fraud and conspiracy to pay illegal kickbacks for medical procedures that were never actually provided. 47-year-old Hovik Semedian of Los Angeles and 49-year-old Anheet Shadovarian of Glendale were each charged in federal court with one count of conspiracy to commit health care fraud, six counts of health care fraud, and one count of conspiracy to pay health care kickbacks. The two allegedly managed and operated three medical clinics, Columbia Medical Group Incorporated, Life Care Medical Clinic, and Safe Health Medical Clinic out of two suites in the same Los Angeles office building. They paid marketers illegal kickbacks to recruit Medicare beneficiaries to the clinics. They then submitted false claims to Medicare for services that were not medically necessary and never actually provided. The clinics allegedly submitted over $4.5 million in false and fraudulent claims. This case is being investigated by the FBI and was brought as part of the Medicare Fraud Strike Force. This strike force is now operating in nine cities across the country and has charged nearly 2,000 defendants who have collectively billed the Medicare program for more than $6 billion. Pulling the curtain back on long-hidden industry relationships, the federal government revealed that U.S. doctors and teaching hospitals had $3.5 billion worth of financial ties with drug and medical device makers in the last five months of 2013. These details have been sought for years by consumer advocates and lawmakers to help flesh out conflicts of interest in the medical profession that are jeopardizing patient care. This first batch of payment data covers just five months of 2013, but it shows the extensive ties medical companies have forged with doctors and academic medical centers across the country. In total, about 546,000 U.S. physicians and 1,360 teaching hospitals received some form of compensation from medical vendors. And California doctors and hospitals received 18% of the U.S. total, or $638 million for the five-month period, according to an analysis performed by the Los Angeles Times. Advocates have long been concerned that this corporate largesse, from speaking and consulting fees to luxury trips and meals, can lead to patients getting the wrong drugs or medical procedures. Those decisions can harm patients and drive up the nation's $3 trillion medical tab. 
Consumer advocates hailed the release of the information after years of debate in Congress and steadfast opposition from industry groups. The Physician Payments and Sunshine Act was included in the Obamacare law amid growing demands for more openness in the U.S. healthcare system. However, federal officials urged people not to rush to conclusions because financial ties between medical providers and manufacturers do not necessarily signal wrongdoing. The database does not identify which financial relationships are beneficial and which could cause conflicts of interest. It simply makes the data available to the public. Some physicians and academic medical centers defend industry collaboration as essential to advance research into life-saving treatments. For example, drugs and devices that companies donate to doctors to use in their research are included in the database as company contributions. And medical groups complained that physicians had not been given adequate opportunity to review the information before it was published by the government. And in regulatory news, a new study shows that California has the highest workers' compensation rate in the nation. This list is published by the Oregon Department of Consumer and Business Services once every two years. It shows the 2014 median value of workers' compensation premiums paid was $1.85 per $100 of payroll, a drop of 2% from the $1.88 median in the 2012 study. National premium rates range from a low of $0.88 cents in North Dakota to a high of $3.48 in California. Oregon's workers' compensation system was in sad shape when the state began to compile this list in the 1980s in order to evaluate itself and push for reforms that were eventually passed. As a result of this strategy, Oregon went from 6th to 43rd highest in this year's list. California's $3.48 per $100 payroll was not even close to second place Connecticut at $2.87 per $100 in payroll. In the 2012 report, California was third on the list with $2.92 per $100 of payroll. So in the two years since passage of SB 863, premiums have jumped 56 cents. Thus, California would have to make large reductions in cost to even move from number one to only number two on the list by beating Connecticut. New Jersey, New York, and Alaska rounded out the top five. North Dakota at 88 cents per $100 payroll was at the bottom of the list, which makes it the cheapest state in the nation for employers. It has traditionally ranked lowest, and the state retained its ranking from the 2012 list and also saw a drop in premiums from $1.01. Other states where workers' comp is far below the national median for workers' comp premiums are Indiana, Virginia, Arkansas, and Massachusetts. A new CWCI study shows that the adoption of a workers' comp prescription drug formulary, such as those used in Texas and Washington State, could reduce pharmacy payments by an estimated $124 million to $420 million a year. 
all while simultaneously raising the quality of care and reducing frictional costs in the system. Drug formularies are widely used lists of approved drugs that define the scope and, in some cases, limit the variability in prices for certain types of drugs. Unlike California, states such as Texas, Washington, and Ohio have mandatory formularies that apply uniform standards and drug lists for all injured workers in those jurisdictions. To study the advantages, the CWCI reviewed 1.6 million California workers' compensation prescriptions and applied the Texas and Washington state formularies. The study estimated that using the Texas and Washington formularies in California would reduce brand name drug payments between 42 and 95 percent and reduce the use of controversial Schedule II opioid painkillers by 36 to 45 percent, reducing the associated payments for these drugs by 65 to 78 percent. Applying either formulary in California would sharply reduce workers' comp prescription drug payments from current levels. The additional formulary controls could reduce total pharmaceutical payments by 12% to 42%, which translates to a potential savings of $124 to $420 million a year. The use of a state-mandated formulary would clarify the rules for drug selection, reduce the volume of ancillary services such as drug testing, and reduce administrative expenses for utilization review and independent medical review. CWCI President Alex Swerdlo said he is aware of discussions among officials within California's workers' compensation system over whether or not to adopt a mandatory formulary. Establishing such a formulary in California would not require action from the state legislature. It could be done through regulatory changes by the state divisions of workers' compensation. However, the system could face opposition from prescription drug manufacturers. The 2014 International Association of Industrial Accident Boards and Commissioners Annual Conference in Austin offered a forum for regulators from around the country to discuss common issues and potential solutions. At this year's conference, regulators highlighted a variety of complex issues that they are currently facing. One hot topic was benefits for illegal aliens. Nearly all states extend benefits in some form to illegal alien workers. In some states, this is limited to medical benefits, while other states limit this to medical and total disability. In most states, there are no limitations to what benefits these workers can receive. The overall concern is that some states are awarding these injured workers permanent total disability benefits because they cannot be put through vocational rehabilitation and return to work. Thus, Their status as an illegal alien is factoring into the permanent disability award. Attorneys are also arguing that total disability benefits should continue when a light duty release is obtained because that person cannot legally return to work. States are trying to strike a balance between protecting illegal alien workers, but at the same time not rewarding them additional benefits simply because of their inability to legally work in the United States. 
The explosion of ride-sharing services such as Uber is also causing concern with regulators around the nation. Uber is a ride-sharing service based in San Francisco. The company uses a smartphone application to connect passengers with drivers of vehicles for hire. Customers use the app to request rides and track their reserved vehicle's location. The big concern from a workers' compensation standpoint is whether these drivers should be classified as employees of Uber or whether they are independent contractors. Owners of taxi companies argue that allowing these drivers to be classified as independent contractors creates an unfair competitive advantage. States are challenged with whether they can classify these drivers by statute or whether this should be done by the courts interpreting current statutes. And finally, problems with large deductible policies were discussed at the conference. <clears throat> Regulators feel that there is confusion on the differences between large deductible policies and self-insurance with many employers assuming that the two are interchangeable. In some states, the courts have ruled that employers under a large deductible policy cannot have influence over the claims handling process, so they cannot access items like adjuster files. It was stressed that under deductible policies, the carrier is ultimately responsible for payment of the claims and compliance with the statutes. If the carrier is unable to collect the deductible from the employer, the regulators do not have jurisdiction over the issue. The deductible agreement is outside the parameters of the insurance policy. And in other news, submitting medical records to IMR can be an arduous process. However, as the IMR system improves the flow of information, the process becomes less of a problem. Now, claims examiners may be able to submit records electronically over the internet. To discuss how this might be done, the Division of Workers' Compensation and Maximus Federal Services invite claims administrators to attend a two-hour webinar on Wednesday, October 22nd from 10 a.m. until noon. The webinar will discuss electronic submission of medical records related to the independent medical review process with the primary focus on the MFS Secure File Transfer Protocol solution. Secure File Transfer Protocol, or SFTP, is a network protocol that provides file access, file transfer, and file management functionalities over any reliable data stream such as the internet. SFTP is a secure way to transfer files between local and remote servers. Content for this webinar will largely be technical in nature. Therefore, interested parties are encouraged to have its IT staff attend. Interested parties can register for the webinar online for the general meeting for the California community regarding the transfer of medical records using a file transfer solution. That is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates for past editions of our news, and for much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. 
Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.